Welcome to Catholic Living, a podcast that seeks to be a user's guide to the Catholic faith, where we boldly ask, what if this stuff is all true? How then should we live? This is brought to you by Excorde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. I'm Tom Hoops. I'm writer-in-residence here at the college, and you can read what I write at alatea.org or excorde.org. And today I want to talk about personal identity, personal identity. And we probably all have personal stories that touch on this topic, personal stories that are maybe too fresh, too painful. Um, so I'm going to tell a story, well, a couple of stories. I don't know if you've seen this Family Policy Institute of Washington video that Bishop Barron recommends. It shows uh, Joseph Backholm, who's their host, visiting the campus of the University of Washington. And he asks people a series of questions. He starts out asking them about transgendered bathrooms. But soon he's asking them if they would believe that he was a woman. And they would. He asks if they would believe that he was seven years old. A couple of them would. A couple of them don't want to say he's wrong, but don't want to say he's right. He asks them if they would believe he's Chinese. And they all agree, sure, you can say that about yourself. He asks them if they would agree that he, if he thought he was six foot five. Uh, a couple of them balk at that. Apparently, measurements are a form of objective reality that they're willing to acknowledge still. But a couple of them say, yeah, it doesn't hurt anybody if you're six foot five. So he ends by saying, well, okay, so you believe that I could be a six foot five Chinese woman. And some of them are kind of forced to admit that, yeah, that's the logical conclusion of what they've said. And what he's drawing attention to is this kind of difficulty that we're facing over and over again with people thinking that who I say I am is who I am. And there's some really, really great reasons why people are doing that more and more. And the history of philosophy tells us a bunch of them. I want to skip over those reasons, uh, which Bishop Barron does a nice job of running down, um, and go straight to this question of, well, who am I? I love the joke uh, that I just heard today, as a matter of fact, from my producer, Michael Coy, about the, um, the pilgrim who ascends the mountain to speak to the holy man. And he asks him, oh, holy man, I have traveled far to ask you this question. Uh, I have been seeking myself and not finding myself. So I ask you, who am I? The holy man takes out a Polaroid camera, snaps a picture of him, hands it to him and says, there you go. That's who you are. And I think he's on to something there. I think it's just that obvious. But I want to start by saying maybe to our younger generations, to millennials and Gen Z, it's not so obvious. And maybe instead of mocking them for not realizing who they are or thinking they can change who they are, uh, we ought to understand why they think that they can decide who they are, what is going through their minds. So I have a couple things here. We talked about movies in a recent podcast. So I wanted to um, use a couple of examples from movies. So the Jason Bourne movies are literally about somebody who does not know who he is. He uh, is brought aboard a ship in the Bourne identity, and he has to piece together who he is as he goes through various adventures. One thing he notices is that he has all sorts of skills that the other people around him don't seem to have. Uh, he can 
he can fight. He can note who's in a room as soon as he walks into it. He knows where the exits are. He finds a safe deposit box that gives him some clues to his past. He has some fake identification in there. He has some firearms. He has money. Uh, so he starts to realize, well, I must have been a hitman. I must have been a bad person of some kind. Uh, he finds himself embroiled in uh, a, an adventure that has to do with the CIA and other people who know who he is and are trying to stop him. That he has to, he has this race against time to figure out who he is. Well, how does he end up finding who he is? Well, at first, he ends up finding who he is by falling in love with a woman. He finds himself in love. But next, he finds himself at the very end of the first trilogy of Bourne movies by discovering the whole backstory. He discovers uh, who his family is. His name was David Webb. He, dis- uh, he learns where, what region he's from. He learns what religion he was. It says Catholic on his dog tag that he finds. And he learns that his education and occupation have hijacked his identity and sent him in a new direction. So I think that's very instructive of uh, what we need to look for in identity. If you think about this, this is how Jesus Christ came to identify himself with mankind. He, uh, he, the word became flesh, we learn. So he's the word, he is with God and was God, but then by becoming flesh, he pitches his tent among us and he's one of us, he gets a body. And then uh, in the Joyful Mysteries of the Rosary, you have the visitation and you have Christmas, the nativity, where the word gains a family. So he identifies himself in a family. You see him exiled to Egypt, and then you see his eventual return to Nazareth. And then throughout the rest of the gospel stories, he's very strongly identified with a region. You find him gather around friends and companions around him, the apostles. So then he becomes very identified by his friends. You find his relationship to the temple in the presentation and later in the finding of the temple. Uh, You find him determining his place in the universe as whether he is a Pharisee or against the Pharisees. And then you find him referred to whenever somebody from his old hometown sees him, they call him the carpenter's son. So this vocation and occupation. So those are the, the, the kind of the ways that I want to look at it. They're the ways that Bourne identified himself. They're the ways that Jesus Christ identified himself. And I think they're the ways we identify ourselves through body, family, friends, region, religion, education, and vocation. So let's start with body. We each have a body. We each have X and Y chromosomes. Uh, The thing that they don't tell you when they talk about gender ideology is that there is a biological difference between people, whether they are born with all the parts that their gender normally has or not. There is a biological way at the chromosomal level of determining that you're male or female. And that turns out to be very important for who you are because you you determine who you are in your body by knowing what your body is for. There's a Thomist friend I have who's a theologian here at Benedictine College who does this exercise with his class. He asks them, what would you call a hard-shelled petroleum-based product that makes marks that are temporary? Nobody can guess what it is. He's defined this thing, but nobody can guess from the definition what it is. Then he holds up a dry erase marker 
is, well, you call it a marker. You call it by what it does, not by the fact of what its body looks like, but what its body is for. This is what John Paul II's Theology of the Body is all about. Uh, the body reveals the person in its masculinity and femininity, he says. Uh, you, and he talks about the nuptial meaning of the body. Your body is made for the wedding, for the bride, or your body is made for the groom. But think of all the ways that our society has made it really, really hard for younger generations to see the purpose of their bodies. There's widespread contraception such that the sexual act is no longer connected to the procreative act. It becomes merely the uniting of men and women, which is half of the story of what a body is for. But they've learned to disassociate sex and its procreative meaning. I remember there in the this was back in the um, 90s. I was looking at the Washington Post, and they had an article by an essayist who was trying to figure out what uh, female breasts were for. She was talking about them in various cultural aspects of how they're used. And it, she never mentions, oh, they're for nursing babies, because she's been so cut off from the biological reality of what bodies are for. And this was in the 90s. You also have a lot of elective plastic surgery. That means that the way your body looks is not necessarily the way your body is. You can do what you want to make your body look the way you want to. Uh, and you know, plastic surgery is extremely important. As people whose dignity in lives, plastic surgery has just totally transformed. Uh, but what I'm talking here is the kind of the you know perfecting, perpetually trying to perfect your body uh, to try to meet some standard of beauty. Then there's sterilization, which permanently cuts your body off from its nuptial meaning. And now, of course, all of this has led to gender fluidity, right? Where you can be a male today and a female tomorrow. And um, I don't want to make too much light of that because there are people with real who really struggle with gender dysphoria. It's a real thing and it's a significant thing. But it's also it shouldn't be a surprising thing given the way we've alienated ourselves from our bodies over the years. So the next category that Jesus defined himself in and the born discovered his reality in is family. If you look back in history, you see that family was even more significant an identifier. Uh, you had Simon, son of Jonah in the Bible. You have the sons of Zebedee uh, in the Bible with the apostles. Well, you have that in the United States too. Americans take our dad's last name or, our, uh, or women take their husband's last name. And that has been at various times accused of being something sexist. But what it is, is people wanting to strongly identify themselves with a family, with who they're from, who they belong to, who they're related to. And they've found that's an expedient way to do that. With divorce and fatherlessness at epidemic levels, you suddenly have a crisis in not just the family, but in personal identity. If you have not met your dad or spent a lot of time with your dad, then suddenly it's very difficult to define yourself as your father's son. My wife likes to point out that the more we stray from sort of the, you know, God's plan for our lives, the more complicated our lives become. So the more your family strays away from one 
uh, one husband with one wife for a lifetime, the more complicated it becomes. Suddenly, it, suddenly your family is not there and not being there makes it really hard to identify with your family. So to make matters worse, we also have a number of practices that have made family relationships even more tenuous. So Mary Eberstadt has a, her new book, Primal Scream, where she makes this excellent point that our siblings are extremely important to our formation of our identity and our lives. So you grow up with siblings and it creates all these relationships that are extremely important to human development, as it turns out, a lifelong peer group that doesn't change. She shows studies that show a kind of a almost one-to-one -one relation between the number of siblings you have and the, uh, your likelihood of divorcing. Because the more siblings you have, the more you rub up with humanity and realize people are sometimes great and sometimes terrible and that that's okay. And you learn to share and give and take turns. All these very fundamental things that turn out to be extremely important. Now, there are lots of families throughout history who haven't had a lot of siblings. And often what happens is you live near your cousins and they kind of perform this function in your life. But now we have very few children. And as we'll see, they're spending a lot of time alone. There's no more roving bands of children. And so this whole idea of siblings is disappearing. But that brings us to friends and companions, these kind of um, alternate siblings that are available to some people. Uh, and this is something that became very identifying for the 12 apostles. And uh, when Jesus told them during Holy Week, you know, you are not my slaves, you are my friends. That was a watershed moment in human history when we're friends of God. And today, Friends are just as important as ever. And the lack of friends is causing social isolation. It's causing all sorts of um, depression and despair. So why is that? What's happened to friends? Well, one obvious culprit to look at is social media, where on Facebook, friends have a totally different meaning from what they have in real life. A friend is somebody who you can sit down face to face with, pour your heart out, uh, they can see you when you're being petty and forgive you. They can see you when you're uh, vulnerable and accept you. Uh, and it's really unlikely for people to have friends like that. Instead, we seem to be using this placebo of online friendship to fill a hole in our soul, this longing for friends. And we think that we've patched it up, and but we really haven't. We've really put a Band-Aid on a wound and we don't end up with the kind of deep friendships that, that fulfill us. An, another kind of strike against friendship that our younger people are having to deal with is this ideological animosity, which has kind of uh, put us all in separate bubbles such that it's really hard. I remember in college, uh, one of my best friends with this, was with this guy who was totally ideologically opposed to everything I believed in. But he was a great guy and we would have great conversations. We'd debate and, um, you know, we didn't hate each other because we had different political views or different views on one thing or another. But today people hate each other if they have different political views. You find it really, really hard to talk to somebody who would dare vote for Trump or who would dare vote for Biden. Uh, there's just this, this ideological animosity that COVID made even worse because suddenly you have 
you're this animus toward people who don't share your view of vaccines or don't share your view of masks. So that's a real difficulty that young people today have to overcome in a way that I don't think we had to in earlier generations. So your friends uh, tell you who you are, but also your region and your country tell you who you are. Different regions in the United States were very much shaped by the people who landed there. But you see these regional differences that have been really strong in history. In fact, you had Flannery O'Connor once said that uh, we know more about somebody from their region than any other single thing about them. Uh, Jesus was called the man from Galilee because that was considered something significant to say about him. So my dad was born in Kansas, but he lives in Arizona. My mom was born in Mexico and she passed away, but she lived with him in Arizona. I live, I lived in Connecticut. My children were born in several different states, Virginia, Connecticut, and one in Kansas. We have widespread migration. It's becoming harder and harder for us to identify strongly with a region. Then you have globalization, where the World Wide Web keeps us in touch with places from all over the world, and we're no longer bound by time and place uh, in the same way. And then you have cultural homogenization. So you no longer have that restaurant that only exists in Atchison, Kansas, uh, you have, you know, chains of restaurants that look the same, whether you're in Atchison or Montreal or Charleston. Another key marker has always been religion. And this stands to reason because the fundamental relationships in our lives are our family, our friends, but also our relationship with God. But what has happened? First of all, in the Christian side of things, the homogenization of the denominations happened. So the relationship with God is now almost, it's almost united people who believe in God of all stripes versus people who don't, uh, which is a poverty in the, um, in the way our religion used to define us. You also have consumerism, which has made money, our uh, mammon, our God, if you will, to such an extent that, you know, Many of us spend more time on Amazon than we do on, uh, you know, pr in prayer. We spend more time filling our lives with gizmos and gadgets and cool things and stylish things than we do trying to ordain our soul with spiritual treasures. Uh, so consumerism is kind of hijacked religion as an identifier, and then lack of religious education. You find, you know, you said the recent. Um, survey that showed that, what was it, a third or less than a third of people uh, believe in the real presence of the Blessed Sacrament. I would argue that it's probably, you know, less than a third of the people have even heard that you're supposed to believe in the Blessed Sacrament because religious education has gotten to a point where, you know, you don't feel like you need to go. And if you do go, you don't necessarily learn much of anything at all. So religion has stopped being an identifier for young people. And so has education. So one thing is the homogenization of public education such that everybody is learning the same things regardless of where you are. And private schools often follow suit on some of these ideological things. Then you have relativism, which is literally taught in some of our schools such that you aren't allowed to believe in absolute truths except for certain absolute truths that they'll tell you to believe in. But it gives this kind of malaise where people 
don't really identify themselves by education as much anymore because they don't feel like they need to believe in truth as much anymore. You have a lack of civic education. Uh, I asked even some of my savvier students if they could name their congressman and senator. They could not. They don't know basic things about how many people are on the Supreme Court, the fact that there's somebody who's been nominated or who is likely to become nominated as a Supreme Court justice. There's just this lack of understanding, this, the, the education that we were given in just the way the United States works has fallen by the wayside. And I'll end with vocation. Your vocation or your occupation has always described who you are. John Paul II calls the fact that you work one of the characteristics that distinguishes man from the animals. So it's a fundamental part of who we are. You even see it in the names of people. So Baker, Fisher, Fuller, Taylor, Thatcher are all last names that came from occupations. Hoops apparently is also it came from people who made the hoops for barrels back in the day. But in the 20th, first century, our world has become digitized to the point where we don't have that direct contact with the produce of our labors the way we used to. You know, if you ask somebody from Gen Z, what does your mom and, or dad do for a living? They'll say, I don't know, something in an office. You know, you're, you're not the daughter of a tailor anymore. You're the daughter of a quality improvement consultant, right? What does that mean? It's hard to wrap your brain around that as a child. Uh, you're the son of an auditing oversight supervisor. So you have all these proliferation of job titles, which makes it hard to understand. You have this uh, distance between the um, pro product made and your work, which makes it really hard to identify yourself as a craftsman. Uh, you know, if you're part of a company that provides insurance products to overseas workers. It's really hard to, to, to see where the rubber meets the road in, in your life and what, what you're producing. So even our these, these kind of community builders on the fundamental level where somebody's occupation was grosser have been uh, obliterated. So what does all this say about who we are? I just went rapid fire through seven different areas of who you are. But I think you can take these areas and kind of boil them down to a few things. First of all, we're bodies with souls, right? That's Our body is important because it says something about who we are and what we're for. But our body and our soul are uh, matched up. We're made to love. That's why we're uh, our families and our friends are important. We're ensouled bodies made to love. Um, we are made to know. So that's why our education is so important. And we're made to serve God. That's why our religion and our vocation and occupation are so important. So the liturgical life in general gives us a way to incorporate all these aspects and how to reintegrate all these aspects of our lives. This is one of the great things about being Catholic is that it gives you a way to know who you are. Um, just look at Lent and the Holy Week coming up as an example. So the Stations of the Cross reveal how Christ uses his body. You know, we fast to try to get in touch with our body, put our soul and mind back together again so our mind is controlling our body and not vice versa. You know, Lent is and Holy Week is a family time where we gather together. And then we see Jesus, who is abandoned by literally everybody except for his family and a couple close friends. His mother, 
who he then reestablishes as our family member. She becomes our mother at the cross. Uh, so he's using these very these touch points of personal identity to kind of draw us in. Our region and country becomes important. You have to show up at a place for to do the liturgical events that we are involved in. But then we see the story of Jesus Christ who died in a particular place, who was from a particular place. Uh, our religion is becomes important, and we see where our religion came from, how the old covenant was reconfigured into the new on Holy Thursday. Uh, our education becomes important. The last words Jesus says to us is, go out and teach the world my commandments, right? And our vocation comes at the same moment, and we see on Holy Thursday, obviously, priests gain their vocation as well. So religion is a great way Catholics have to reintegrate these parts of their body their parts of their identity into one. So like I said at the beginning, when you meet the holy man on the mountaintop and ask him, who am I? And he shows you a picture of yourself. He's essentially doing what Jesus Christ does, and he's essentially giving us the answer to the great question of meaning of who am I? And But at the same time, we shouldn't mock Gen X for doing this. It's not our job to laugh at them or to say, oh, that's so crazy. Our, it's our job to show them who they are. Ultimate, uh, ultimately, as Christians, we only have one identity, which is a being in the image of God who is loved and is made to love. The only way to find yourself is to give yourself away. By giving yourself to another, you reveal yourself in love. This is what Jesus Christ does for us in the Mass, in the sacraments. He tells us here, this is who you are. And who you are turns out to be a being in the image of God who is loved and made to love. And you reveal yourself by giving yourself away, by loving others, by embedding yourself in the relationships that surround you and buoy you up and tell you ultimately, this is who you are. This is where you belong. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Hoops, and this is the Catholic Living Podcast, produced by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Our mission is to produce media that will transform culture in America, through Benedictine's mission of community, faith, and scholarship. Visit us at excorde.org.